Our sermon passage today continues on in our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We'll be picking up at verses, uh, verse 14 and reading through verse 18. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of His fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Let's pray. Father, I thank You again, as we have already prayed in this service, for the revelation of who You are in Jesus Christ. So I pray in these moments, as we look at these verses, that you would move upon our hearts to give us a clearer and clearer picture of you, and in light of who you are, a clearer and clearer picture of ourselves. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Life in this world can be jarring. I'm not saying anything uh, that should be, um, you know, controversial. <laughs> Life can be difficult. It can be very, very hard. It can be stressful. Why? Um, Well, I say in part, it's because things are not the way they're supposed to be. We don't live in a world that works exactly the way it's supposed to. Death, disease, injustice, oppression, these are not what we were created for as human beings. And so, in this world that we live in, we struggle. We struggle because things are not the way they're supposed to be, and rightly so. We struggle simply in living in the reality of what this world is. We struggle to with the idea that God could be good when so much is so bad, right? I do. And in answer to this, in answer to this this feeling of difficulty in the world, sometimes, uh, or oftentimes, pastors, religious leaders, teachers will try to give very easy answers because we want easy solutions. We want to be able to figure out this difficulty really quickly. And so uh, some will tell you, that the reason why things are so difficult is because we just don't have enough faith. That if we believed hard enough, that disease wouldn't happen. If we believed hard enough, then all the bills would be paid and we wouldn't have any troubles uh, that we'd get what we want. Um, Some people say uh, that that talking about difficulties, talking about suffering is having a a victim mentality and what we need is victory to walk into our world and, and claim the victory. And that talking about difficulties is, is, uh, is lesser than, that, that we shouldn't do that. And some people just simply downplay how hard things are. But this morning, or whenever you're watching this, um, I don't want to offer shallow answers because we don't have shallow problems. We have very deep issues. Um, and I don't want to pretend that life isn't hard because it is. I don't want to downplay your pain because I know that it really hurts. But what I want to do this morning is to give you, give us, me and you together, an anchor in this storm. Not good ideas that I have. I want to give you a harbor in the tempest of life, a place to aim ourselves in the midst of the fog. Not an easy answer, but a person. Jesus Christ. Jesus, who in response to the darkness of our world, to the reality of the difficulties of our world that does not work the way it's supposed to, he did not give an easy answer, but he came to us to redeem us. He came to us 
to free us from the things that bind us. He came to us to save us, and He came to us to reveal to us more clearly than anything in all creation who God is and what He is about. So my hope for us this morning, we're going to look at these four verses again. My hope for us is that we'll find our hearts captured and even baffled by the love of God and Jesus Christ, and that we'll be encouraged in the midst of the difficulties of our world, in the midst of the storm of our world, to rest in Him, rest in who He is and who He says we are. Let's do that by seeing how God has revealed Himself uh, here in John chapter 1. You know, in the last few weeks, we've been looking some at the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. And I've said the Gospel of John is kind of like an ongoing uh, civil tri- or ongoing trial. And there's these back and forths, and who's on trial? Jesus Christ. And people are asking, who is this guy and what's he, what is he about? And, um, and we've seen in previous weeks that God's intentions for us go back even before creation. We can say that God's love for us is older and stronger than our sin. John 1 says that Jesus was the Word, that a concept that pointed to the inherent uh, order of the universe that is rooted in a personal God, that He is the light and life of all mankind. And these are all big claims. And we may ask, if we haven't already, we may ask how John, the person who wrote this gospel, how he could say even say this. What's his, what's his proof? How does he know this? Is he just making up stuff as he goes along that he wants to believe? Well, in first verse 14, I think we get the culmination of how the gospel writer, how John, can say such things. Look at verse 14. He says, The Word became flesh. And how did, so how did the Word come into the world? We've already seen that He's the light and life of all mankind. Did He pop in? and reveal certain things and then and then pop back out almost like a, a tactical mission. <laughs> he comes in, reveals some things about God, and he's, he's pulled back out. Did he appear almost as like a ghostly apparition to lead people in life lessons, like, a, like a Jesus as the ghost of Christmas past? <laughs> um, you know, in, in the ancient world, in the time that the gospel writer was writing, there was an idea that sometime the gods, the Greek gods that the Romans loved so much, would sometimes visit earth. Um, if you if you know anything about Greek mythology, you've heard the stories. The gods would sometimes appear and uh, trick people, or sometimes they'd give them basic advice about what to do next. And if God had just said that the word came into the world and looked like a man and taught us some stuff, it would have been surprising. Yeah, maybe. But it's something they would have comprehended. They would have got it. Um, that was a pretty common religious claim. It would have made sense to them. Almost like a visiting politician on a campaign. He would come in, he would show up for uh, in town for a couple hours at a rally, he would make a speech, but then he would be gone, right? Politicians don't show up and stay. Uh, they pass through and leave. But John doesn't write that. He writes something very different. He says that the Word, the Word who was with God, the Word who was God, the Word who made all things, who's the light and life of all mankind, became flesh. It may be the most shocking term in this passage full of shocking terms. Remember I said the first 18 verses in previous weeks are like the attorney's opening statement in this courtroom drama. This is the, this is the, the, the phrase that the attorney says and the jury gasps. The word became flesh? 
The word didn't just drop in for a visit like a Greek god. He didn't just pop in for a, a rally and then leave like a visiting politician. No, the word became flesh and dwell, made his dwelling with us. Now, I mentioned in previous weeks that word was an, a loaded term in the ancient world. Well, the word flesh was too. Um, in, the, in the ancient world, the time of the Gospel of John, if you said flesh... It was a word that had been used by philosophers and religious thinkers to describe the lower world, in a sense, that which was inherent and limited and, and weak. In fact, the Bible uses it in a way, um, the flesh usually means our creaturely weakness, what it means to be a human in a world of sin. Um, basically, it's kind of the exact opposite of what people tend to think of when they say God. When the Bible says flesh, it means human nature marred by sin. Uh, the theologian Karl Barth actually called it our unnature. Our flesh is our unnature. It's our nature not working the way it was created. It's our human nature marred by sin. Um, and so, naturally, you would think flesh, this fleshly world, whether you're a philosophical Greek thinking about what's lower than the spirit, what's finite and limited and weak. Or you're a religious Jewish person, you're thinking of flesh as our human nature marred by sin. This is something unworthy of God, right? God, the perfect one, he, he should be completely separated from, from imperfect flesh. But exactly what John says here is that the Word, God, became flesh. The Word took on human nature marred and frustrated by sin. That this unbridgeable gulf that exists between God and flesh has been crossed and that this has happened in Jesus Christ. The Word, the eternal creator of all things, light and life of all mankind, has put on to himself the limitations and weaknesses of being a human being in our difficult and frustrating world. In other words, Jesus Christ was not just some ancient God who appeared to be a human being. Because if that was true, then Jesus could not have helped us in the ways that we actually need. Because we don't just need life lessons. We live in a world where we are bound by sin. We are stuck in darkness. We need someone to come in and rescue us. We need someone to come in to the darkest places of our life with his light. We need someone to take on the things we cannot bear. And Jesus does that. And so his salvation is true because he is a true Savior. He's not imaginary. He comes to us. His salvation is real because our need is real. And so the eternal Son of God became what he was not, a human being. But he did not cease to be what he always was, the Word. And now Jesus is both God and man joined together in one person. Now, it's worth noting here, again, to, to further emphasize that the gospel writer, that John does not say the Word became a man, a man. He says the Word became flesh. The significance for me here is that this uh, cast it as Jesus was not just a regular, ordinary, singular person. In, in a sense, in saying that the Word became flesh, John is saying the Word became humanity. The Word became humanity that uh, he wasn't just a singular person, that he became, in a sense, our uh, representative. He became our head. Um, 
and did what? What did the, the, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, made his dwelling. That word dwelling is translated dwelling here, but it could also be translated, it's the same word that's used in the Old Testament as tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. Now, the background of this idea is the Old Testament, Old Testament tabernacle in the time of Moses, where God literally pitched a tent in the middle of his traveling people to travel with them, to lead them, and to dwell with them. But the tabernacle and the temple that came after it, the more permanent dwelling of God in Jerusalem, those were foreshadows. Those were arrows pointing forward to God truly dwelling with us, not just uh, symbolically in a tent or a temple, but God dwelling with us as a human being in Jesus Christ. For John and the other disciples, Jesus physically dwelt in their midst. The gospel writer here, John, he traveled with Jesus for three years during his ministry. He literally dwelt among uh, the disciples. And for us today, right now, for us, in our lives, Jesus dwells with us with his Holy Spirit, which is a down payment in a sense that points forward to the fullness of God dwelling with us in Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. Not a place that's marred by sin, but a world where uh, justice has been done. A world where all that is wrong is made right. But what does this uh, dwelling among us do? What's the effect of him dwelling with us? Look at the next verse. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now, this takes us back to the book of Exodus again. Now, if you go back to the book of Exodus, you'll see that there are uh, Moses gets like this blueprint for the tabernacle. God gives the design of the tabernacle, this tent that's going to dwell among the people. He gives it to Moses. And uh, this, uh, this idea of, of, of seeing the glory of Jesus and him being full of grace of truth, it takes us again back to Exodus. Because after... God gives the blueprints to the tabernacle. And after God gives his instructions in the Ten Commandments, Moses asks God an audacious question. Because now he's gotten these blueprints. Now he's gotten this law. And Moses asks to see God's glory. He doesn't want the tent. Moses has rightly seen that these are arrows pointing forward to a greater beauty. He wants to see God's glory. He wants to see God, but he can't. You'll see in Exodus, uh, Exodus 33, that Moses asks, but God says that he can't see his glory, that he can only see uh, his backside, uh, almost in a sense he can only see the, the leftovers of his glory, that he cannot, uh, he is not at that time ready to see the full, the full beauty and majesty of who God is. At least not yet. Because here's the thing. God was preparing in the tabernacle and later the temple. God was preparing all of this time in the history of Israel. Leading up to the time of Jesus. He was preparing the way for generations later when his plan would come to fruition. When he would show his glory through Jesus Christ. Look at what John says here. He says that we have seen his glory. He is saying that in Jesus, the time has arrived. And Jesus, God is pulling back the veil in a sense 
to show the glory of himself in Jesus Christ. That in Jesus, what was denied to Moses is made possible, first for him and the other disciples who knew Jesus, and now for us by faith, that we can see revealed in Jesus what Moses could never see. We can see the glory of God. Or to put it in the words that we had in our uh, confession of sin, our assurance of pardon, 2 Corinthians 4, it says, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us what the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. What's going on here is the gospel writer, John, is making a point that Jesus is superior. He is the fulfillment. He is the true and better of all that came before him. This is part of the reason we're calling this sermon series in John true and better because Jesus is the truth that all the previous truths pointed toward. He is the better fulfillment of the hopes and longings that we may have. Now, the book of Hebrews, if you fast forward to the New Testament, it speaks of it, uh, the Old Testament forms like the tabernacle as uh, shadows. You know, we can see a person's shadow on the ground, and maybe we can tell some things about the person. We see that they have a couple arms, they have legs. We can make out the form. Okay, that's that's probably a, a, a tall man based on his shadow, but we can't see his face, right? We can't tell details about someone's face from the shadows. You can't tell facial expressions. The forms of the Old Testament were like shadows that pointed to a greater reality. And the shadows can tell us something about God. The shadows could not uh, see help us see the smiling face of God toward us. But the reality of Jesus Christ shows us the glory of God. And what we see is an intention to save us from our sin, not leave us condemned. An intention to lead us toward himself, to give us grace upon grace. In Jesus, the light of God's grace shines brightly that we may see it and see it clearly. No longer just shadows. And this revelation of who God is, what does Jesus show us that the glory of God can mean for us? Grace and truth. Grace, God's unmerited favor for us. His uncompelled love and truth. Not deception, not lies, not partial truth, but the truth of God. And so we become people who in Jesus Christ can see the holiness of God and not despair because we find out that God's holiness is a relationship seeking holiness. That yes, he is holy, but that intention of his holiness for us is to make us holy as well, not to leave us in the mess that we have made, not to leave us in this world that does not work the way it's supposed to. So where does the Gospel of John go next? It talks about the idea of Jesus uh, being full of grace and truth and what that fullness means for us individually. As we've seen over and over again, this revelation of Jesus has profound impact on us personally. Because, you know, there, there's a sense where we could understand intellectually maybe that Jesus came, that he was a revelation of, of, of God's glory, and we could be awed at its beauty in a sense, but it could still feel very distant. It's kind of distant, kind of like if we go and visit uh, something like the Grand Canyon. We see the Grand Canyon and we think, wow, that's big, that's impressive. But then, what, we jump back in our cars and we go home. It doesn't really, I mean, maybe we have a memory, but it doesn't impact our day-to-day life after that. But in Jesus, we're not supposed to see the beauty and majesty of God in Jesus Christ and turn away and go back to our lives. 
It's a fullness, he's full of grace and truth, that becomes ours, that becomes who we are. Look at verse 16. Out of his fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, overflows in that grace and truth to us and for us. The fullness of his grace is is like a fountain, becomes like a fountain for us. The theologian John Calvin said that Jesus is the fountain of all goodness. An inexhaustible fountain of grace and truth. The fullness of grace in Christ is the fountain from which we all must draw. And later on in John, he speaks of himself as the the living water. Uh, And and all who drink of this water will will never thirst again. That's what he's talking about. He has become this, uh, this, this fountain of grace for us. For us to keep coming back to time and time again. And he quenches our thirst. He quenches what we need in our deepest parts of who we are. He becomes for us the fountain of all goodness. He becomes an inexhaustible fountain of God's grace. And he gives us, as it says in verse 16, grace in place of grace already given. What John is saying here is that when the law came through Moses, when the tabernacle plans came through Moses, those were instances of God's grace. Uh, Those were times when God was working and pointing toward Jesus Christ. But those things were kind of like uh, streams that flow in to a greater fountain. They were limited, and they were always designed to lead to this greater fountain of Jesus Christ. And because of who he is, because he is the only begotten Son of God, as it says here, Jesus is able to show us God in a way that no other form, not even something like the tabernacle with the blueprints given by God, could show us. We see God's love for us clearly. In Jesus Christ. So, what can we do with all of this? This could, again, like I said, this could, we could treat this almost like uh, the Grand Canyon. We see it, we're awed at its size and its beauty, but we turn away, we go home, and it makes no impact on our day to day life. But the truth of who Jesus is, the Word who became flesh and made his dwelling among, among us, means that his grace is meant to dwell with us. So, what are some ways we can begin thinking through how this truth? changes everything for us. Well, I have a couple. This isn't, you know, an inexhaustible list. There are, are, are so, so many ways that we could conceptualize what it means to apply this to our lives. But hear this. Because he dwells among us, we can know that we are never, ever alone. Part of this world, part of the lives of this world, is that we live in a place where so often we can feel incredible loneliness, even in a crowd. And this is just uh, heightened in this time of COVID where we've, we've lived through almost an entire calendar year of social distancing, stuck at home, unable to get together with friends the way we want to. We can feel like we are stuck and alone. But hear this. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us with you. And now we are never alone. We are never alone. The embodied grace of God in Jesus Christ is with us always. Here's another one. Because he shows us his grace and he shows himself as the fountain of all grace, we don't need to go anywhere else to find our strength and our identity. We don't need to go anywhere else to find our worthiness. 
He is full of grace and truth, and that is a fountain for us to continually draw upon. So when we're tempted to look toward other things like status or, or, or money or whatever it may be, popularity, when we're tempted to look toward things that cannot satisfy us, we can turn away and we can say, no, Jesus Christ and his grace for me is an inexhaustible fountain of all I need for my worthiness, for my identity, for my strength. And so we can come back to him time and time again. We can encourage ourselves with this truth. And here's another one. And this goes along with it. Because he reveals God to us in the most clear most clear way, we don't have to wonder about God's intentions for us. We don't have to live in this world wondering what God wants for us. God is about are good. The way that good parses out doesn't always seem clear to us. Again, we live in a world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. But we can be convinced that the God who sent Jesus Christ to suffer for us, to rise from the dead victorious for us, will not fail to have enough grace for us today, tomorrow, and for eternity. He will not fail to bring us to himself. He will not fail to show us his grace. So this morning, as we meditate and in a moment sing upon this truth of the Jesus who did not remain distant, the word who became flesh to dwell among us, who has shown us his glory, who is full of grace and truth, and out of that fullness has given us his grace May we find that truth a transforming one, one that molds and shapes our hearts, molds and shapes the way we think, molds and shapes the things we do. Let's pray.